If you have any friends whatsoever, you can invite them to the Friday night uh, uh, date night, okay? We've got child care provided. We, it would be great if they were to sign up, but if for some reason they don't sign up, that's okay. You can still invite them on Thursday or Friday, and we can expand. And the way that date night is going to be is it will be hilarious, but on top of that, there will be these really great truths included in it that we expect will be just kind of like a hook that will say, hey, we're doing this conference tomorrow, and so we want to lay it out for our community. We want to lay it out for your friends. So invite them to the date night, and then at the date night, we'll say, hey, come back for the, um, for the conference tomorrow. We would love to have you here. And so if you haven't signed up, please sign up. But if you uh, have any friends that haven't signed up, still invite them to that. It'll be a great time, and there's no cost for any of it. So make sure to sign up for that. You'll see all of the information in the bulletin today, and you can um, make sure to be aware of that. We'll probably have the schedule out as well next week, okay? Uh, in preparation for that, what we're doing is we're just setting up some platforms, some foundational things leading up to the conference. We're just calling it the warm-up uh, as we're talking about a conference to make your family strong. As we're warming that up and, and preparing, we're just kind of covering some basic things so that we don't have to come, uh, cover them that weekend, okay? So we can launch off of the platform we've built. What we want to do is we want to just kind of cover some of those things. And they may seem basic to you, and that's okay, because they are, right? These are foundational things that then we can do a little bit more of a, a, a get into the nitty-gritty details, grind uh, through that as part of our conference. And so um, we're going to lay that platform, continue that today as part of the warm-up. Last week, as we were kicking off this series, we had the kids in with us. It was a fifth Sunday. What a tremendous mess that was. And... <laughs> So many good ways. I found out very publicly that my daughter is doubting her commitment to the Green Bay Packers, and I don't want that to happen in a public location, um, but that's part of the fifth Sunday thing, and it's good. It's good for us to have the kids in with us as part of that. I know it's more difficult for you, our parents, because you're not only trying to read your Bible and, and uh, worship, but you're also wrangling your kids at the same time, and and so I say thank you for doing it. I'm sorry it's difficult. We're going to keep on doing it every fifth Sunday because we think that there's some real value in it. And I want to reiterate for you this week what I mentioned last week, and that is that not only is it worth it, but that at least I do not consider your child's squirminess to be any indication of your parenting ability. And so just relieving the stress of that and the pressure of that. Um, I also have never kicked out somebody from the service because their kids were too loud. That, that's not entirely true. One time, one time I kicked out somebody who was being too loud and it was my wife and my newborn son. If you all remember that, it was wonderful. <laughs> so Asher was new, uh, fresh to praise, not yet able to go into the nursery, and so he was on the front row, and I started to preach. 
and Asher started giving some feedback. <laughs> and Elizabeth got up and started walking out, and I watched every head in the congregation start watching my wife. <laughs> and I knew they were distracted, I knew my wife was pressured, and so very selflessly, <laughs> selflessly, I made a comment. I said, would somebody get that child out of here? <laughs> Everybody laughed. Pressure released. Everybody came right back to me. Okay? Surprisingly, I haven't had any other children. <laughs> the next morning, we got a phone call from somebody who was driving through Springfield, Missouri, decided to come to church that Sunday. <laughs> Absolutely mortified for this wonderful young lady who was sitting on the front row who got kicked out of church by the pastor. It was awesome. And then we told her, yes, that was the pastor's wife and son. Surprisingly did not make it better. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what... It was like... No, that, that's not better? Um, I didn't tell her that I almost pushed the joke further and made a comment about probably a lack of discipline on the, parents, on the father's side of it or something along those lines. I'm sure that was wisdom. So we just kept, <laughs> kept moving. So besides that one time, I've never kicked anybody out of church because their kids were too loud. So just, and, and even... Okay, it is hard. It's difficult for us to have kids in with us, wrangle them at the same time that we're trying to focus in. And I get that that's difficult, but it's so worth it. And it's also hard on me because I'm trying to preach to five-year-olds up to 95-year-olds. And trying to find a way to do that is difficult, but it's worth it. And we're going to keep on doing it because of the fact that our kids get to see us worshiping as a church. And they are a part of the kingdom of God as we are a part of the kingdom of God. And it's good to have us all together. Okay? Amen? All right. So, so we're going to keep on doing it, and just blame me. If I don't keep your kids' interest, just blame me. Um, but for those of you who were trying to pay attention, and your kids were punching each other in the nose or something, and you were not able to really grasp what we were talking about, we really were just setting this thing up, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you would go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 today, if you didn't grab a Bible or bring a Bible with you, there are some that are spread out throughout the seats. You can also grab your phone, open it up to praise.fyi. There you'll see all of the scriptures laid out in front of you, as well as an opportunity to take notes this morning. And I do encourage you to do that, because while the scriptures will be up on the screen, at least at one point today, I really want you to be looking at it in front of you, because there's something really specifically I want you to see as you look at the text as a whole, okay? So that's important. But we started in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to come back uh, for the next few weeks to this passage over and over and over. And today we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 as I just kind of start with some of the basic things that we talked about last week, kind of setting up this platform, this foundational understanding of the way this thing works. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That first part of this is called the Shema. 
We mentioned last week, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that this was the central, really, statement of the Jewish faith. And when I say that, what I mean by that is this. They would, um, this was supposed to be made at least three times a day, they would say this. You could not go to synagogue to this day. You can't go to synagogue without hearing this statement and speaking this statement at least once. It was supposed to be the very first words that were taught to a child when they are able to speak. And it was supposed to be one of the last things spoken when they would die. And yet, even as you see this statement that's about who our God is and the fact that he is one, it's kind of, it, it, it's sneaky offensive. You don't think it's offensive at first until you see how incredibly exclusive it is. There is one God, and he is Yahweh. And very clearly, that comes up right off the bat. And it, it is one of those things that is actually supposed to be um, like a witness for them. Uh, specifically, here's, here's how you know that. The last two letters of the first word and the last two letters of the last word, if you were to look at Jewish scriptures, would be larger than the rest of the letters. And if you take those two letters and the last two letters and you put them together, they form the word in Hebrew, witness. And that was intentional in order to let people know that this is not just a statement that is for me, but it is a statement that is supposed to be through my life, others see as well. So from the very beginning, this was something that was supposed to be declared to those who do not already have it. This was a witness thing for them. And at the very core of it was family. From the very beginning, here we are in Deuteronomy, page 151 in my Bible, and they're already talking about this in relation to family. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And what we talked about last week was the progression that you see here. Very clearly, family was a, a core part of the sharing of the faith, and that it was intentionally supposed to be done in the structure of the family itself. But even as you say that, you watch and you see how God works in this. He doesn't start with the gates. He doesn't start with the doorposts. He does not start with the hand or the front lip between the eyes. Where does he start? He starts with the statement of who God is, and then us loving him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our might, and these things being on our heart, and then from there it moves outward. Those are the things that are on our heart that we teach to our children. And the thing is, so quickly they get this wrong. I mean, so quickly, thousands of years later, but Jesus had to deal with the fact that in Jesus' day, they had the phylacteries, and if you don't know what those are, they literally would do that, which is like a total exercise in literally missing it. Missing it literally. They would so literally do the thing where they would put it on their forehead between their eyes, and they would put it on their arms, but they didn't have it in their hearts. They started with the external, hoping that that was enough, 
When God said no, it begins written on your heart. Then you do these other things. It constantly steps outward. And this is what we talked about last week, just about the fact that very clearly in Scripture, what we see is that God makes us strong starting on the inside and moving outward. And it works the same in our family. We cannot expect God to do something in our kids that he has not first done in us. If you want God to do something in your heart, or in their heart, pray that God would first do it in yours. And once he does, it will move outward. This is his pattern. He works on the inside, and the best work, the best change, changes best when it's inside out. And that's what we see in families, too. It's like a it's like the tree, right? It's only as strong as the inside. If it's hollow, it's going to fall. These are the things we talked about last week. So if you accept that, good. If you don't, I don't care. We're going to move forward with that, okay? So let's step it forward. And if you don't agree with that, you're like, I'm not so sure Alan's right about that, or I'm not so sure God's right about that. Um, that's okay. God will reveal that to you too. But uh, if we were to accept that basic thing, then what is one step outward from my relationship with God? If my heart first, if my relationship with Jesus Christ first, if that's the core of this thing, and I were to say, what is one step outward from that in the family relationship? This is a hard question to answer, but I would answer it with marriage. The marriage relationship is the next step outward. In my relationships, all of my interpersonal relationships, first, Jesus Christ. You take one step beyond that. The second is my relationship with my wife. Okay? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about marriage. And for some of you, this is one of those things where it gets a little awkward because we ran the numbers— Of those who are above the age of 18, 68% of those here at Praise Assembly are married. 31% are not. I don't know what happened to the other 1%, but 31% are not married, 68% are, which means two-thirds are married, one-third is not. And as soon as we start talking about this, that one-third can say, well, that's not for me. If you go below 18 and you start including teenagers and those who are underage, it's actually 51% and 49%. 51% married, 49% not married here at Praise Assembly. So immediately, half the church could say, that's not for me. But here's what we believe about marriage. And if you understand this, you'll have a really good platform for understanding the approach we're going to have for the conference. This is an important foundational understanding. There are three types of people. There are those who are married. There are those who are not yet married. And there are those who have been called to support marriage. Okay? There are those who are married, those who are not yet married, and those who have been called to support marriage. Let me show show you what I mean by that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, 
for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Uh, This is a verse that we don't often dive into, mostly because you start talking about sexual immorality, and it's one of those things that can kind of get awkward for people. But there's a few things I want to point out about this. The first is that there's really two statements that are being made in this verse. Number one is that marriage should be held in honor among all, and then there's a statement let the marriage bed be undefiled. So he uses this picture of the bed itself as a, something that should not be undefiled, which is an image of sexual integrity within the marriage. Okay? But here's what I want you to know. Those two statements are not equal. Let marriage be held in honor among all is not the same as the second part of that statement after and. So the second part of that statement is a part of the first statement, but it is not all of the first statement. So when it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, that includes sexual integrity within marriage. But sexual integrity within marriage is not all of what it means to hold marriage in honor. The word honor in that phrase right there is a word that's used all through Scripture. It's used in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's used in Acts chapter 5. It's used in 1 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. And it's used talking about all kinds of things. It's talking about um, when there's a precious possession. Uh, it, it's precious metals are seen as of um, a great worth, Okay. That's the word honor. But it's also used of when you have a respected teacher. So it's to hold in respect. It's also used of the promises of God. Something that is precious to us. And it's also used of the blood of Jesus Christ. Something that is holy. So what we are saying here is that marriage should be held in honor, with respect, as something of great value and worth, precious and holy. And who does it say should be holding marriage in that way? All. You know what it doesn't say? (laughs) Those who have a good marriage. Those who have a Christian marriage doesn't even say those who are married. Which means, I should see my marriage as of great worth, of surpassing preciousness, of respect, and totally holy. But I should also see others' marriages as of surpassing value and worth, precious, respected, and holy. And I should see my parents' marriage as of great worth and precious and respected and holy. And we should see our children's marriages of great worth, precious, respected, and holy. It does not matter where we find ourselves on that spectrum. 
if we're not yet married, never married, divorced, uh, a surviving spouse, not planning on remarrying, who knows? Does not matter. We should all view marriage a very specific way, which is why this series and this conference is so important, because we all know somebody who's married, and how we view that and support that and help them in the midst of that will speak very highly about whether or not we believe that. Let marriage be held in honor among all. So, if I made the statement that after my relationship with Jesus Christ, that relationship which is of first priority for me is marriage, I'm saying something about marriage and parenting when we put them side by side, which one comes first? Well, the very first interpersonal relationship in the history of mankind was a marriage. Adam and Eve, the, we, it's not the chicken and egg type of a situation, right? We know what came first. It's the relationship that, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, is very clearly the relationship used as a pattern for marriage from then on. Therefore, a a man shall leave his father and mother and, and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The first relationship is a relationship between a husband and a wife. Before the kids come along, that relationship comes first. Okay? Great, Alan. I've heard of these birds and bees. I know how it works. But think about it. God didn't have to do it that way. He made Adam from the dust of the earth. If he wanted to just institute the family as a whole, he could have. He could have made Seth and Cain and Abel and the other sons and daughters that it talks about in Genesis chapter 5. Very clearly he could have done that, but that's not the way he did it. He made Adam, from Adam made Eve, and then they made Cain and Abel and Seth and however many other kids they had. So very clearly the first relationship in chronology was that I also believe It's in priority. Here's what I mean by that. I want you to flip to what I believe is the best, the best passage of Scripture about families in the entire Bible. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. This is a passage that any time, just about any time that I'm preaching a a wedding, this passage will come up uh, somewhere in there. I just officiated the wedding for Jonathan and uh, Marissa, Jonathan and Marissa Atwell, and I preached from this passage because it's such a gorgeous and rich passage. Um, before that, I uh, just officiated the weddings of the Holderbees, and I mentioned this passage there as well. It like always comes up because it's the richest passage in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 22. Here's what it says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'll just leave that right there. I do want you to have your Bibles here, okay? This is hugely important that you see this passage in its entirety and not just what's up on the screen because we have to break it up, and I want you to see the whole thing. But it starts with, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You start talking about submit, and a lot of people are good with it, and some people are really uncomfortable about it. Because it's the kind of word that can be abused in multiple different directions. So some people take it too far one direction, and then others trying to pull away from it go too far the other direction. Very clearly it says, submit. But I want to talk about that and start with this. The verse before this, verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So very clearly, before we even get to this passage, it is built upon a platform of mutual submission. Okay, mutual. Everybody submit to one another. And that word submit, I, I, I think that word alone deserves like a whole lot of emphasis. I studied it a while back when I was preaching that sermon on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, talking about the relationship between a church and its pastor. And so I really dug into it there. And it's a really interesting word that's used there when it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. That submit is a showing of deference. It's the word that's used when you're sitting in a chair and somebody else walks up that you should show deference by getting out of the chair and offering it to them. That's actually one of the ways that the word is used to show deference to that other person. That's very clearly what is being spoken here, among other things. But here, speaking to the wives, Paul gives one thing. Then he moves on to the husband and gives 417. I don't know what that says, but it says something, okay? He gives one thing to the wives. Here comes everything to the husbands. Verse 25. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So he says, in the same way Christ sanctified the church, we also must give ourselves as husbands to our wives, that we might also make them splendorous without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, without blemish. Also, love your wives as your own bodies, because nobody hates his own body, but instead they nourish it and cherish it, just as Christ does the church. So nourish and cherish and care for your spouse, because we're all members of one body. And then he quotes from that passage I quoted or mentioned just a moment ago, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus quotes that passage in Matthew chapter 19, Verse 5, and here he says, and this is why, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and then one more thing, finally, for the wives. 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay? Then we get to parenting. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment, with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a rich passage. It says a whole lot. It's the kind of passage that legitimately we could take three months and do a deep dive on and never come up for air. But we're not going to. And so instead of that, in spite of the fact that we could just dive in and be there and, and, and not breathe, I want to mention just two general observations about this passage. And this is where it's so vital that you have the scriptures in front of you, either in your Bible or on praise.fyi, so you can look at the passage in its entirety. Okay? Two general observations about it. Number one, look at what portion of this passage is focused on marriage and what portion is focused on parenting. I actually counted the words up. There are 215 words focused on marriage, 60 words focused on parenting, which means four-fifths of this passage is about marriage, one-fifth of this passage is about parenting. And I really think that should catch our attention. Because when Paul is laying out for us in what I believe is the richest passage about family in Scripture, when he is laying that out for us, what does a strong family look like? He takes four-fifths of the time to talk about the marriage and one-fifth of the time to talk about parenting. Now that's interesting to me. And I think it says some other things to me as well. Because I do think that even if we got that reversed and we took one-fifth of our effort and poured it into the marriage and four-fifths of the effort and poured it into parenting, we would be spending more time than most on our marriage. Now, there's a couple things I need to say just to qualify this. Number one, um, there are seasons for all things, right? And when you have kids, they can be like, as far as the gravity of the family, a black hole, right? Suck in everything and nothing ever comes back out. Kind of, okay? But the gravity of the family shifts. And even more for women than it does for men. Like, this is just, in general, there's a natural shift that happens. And we need to understand that that's the case. I'm not undermining that. And I understand that there are uh, qualifications that need to be put out. But did you know that it costs $233,610 to raise a child from 0 to 17 on average? 
an American household will spend $233,610 raising a child from 0 to 17. So, multiply that times 4, and that's how much you should be spending on your wife for Christmas and birthdays and, and anniversaries. And wives, that's about the equivalent of a Lamborghini, okay? So, just taking that into consideration... I'm not saying that we should spend four-fifths of our money on the marriage and one-fifth on the kids. I'm not saying we should be spending four-fifths of our energy on the marriage and one-fifth on the kids. What I am saying is that for Paul, when he lays it out, the weight of the relationship and the weight of the family is based on the marriage. Okay? It's like super quiet in here, and I'm starting to sweat. Like, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through this thing. Okay, so, but with that said, the weight of it is on the marriage, not the kids. And I think more often than not, we get this backwards, that the kids come along, and they're all and in all and everything, and the marriage becomes nothing. And I think we miss something when that happens. Because go back to the passage and look at it again. Time for the second general observation I want to give you. Second general observation from this passage. Look how intertwined the marriage relationship is and our relationship with Jesus Christ. As a father... I recognize that how I father my children, parent my children, will be a map that they will use in order to understand their relationship with the Heavenly Father. I get that. You can't ever sit through a Father's Day service in any church anywhere and not hear it right? So I've got that, and it weighs on me. That's a weight, and that's heavy, and I recognize that as my kids get older, one of two things will happen. Either my relationship with them will be such that it will be a platform on which their relationship with the Father takes off, or it will be a barrier that they will have to break through if I do it poorly, right? How I father my children will affect how they see their heavenly Father, but did you know, it doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, it doesn't even say in Scripture that as a father, I'm an image of the Heavenly Father to my children. It doesn't say anywhere anything to that effect in Scripture. But do you know what it says right here very clearly? The marriage relationship is all kinds of intertwined with a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to take this passage from verse 22 down to verse 33 and try to pull apart the two sides of it, the, the relationship with your spouse and the relationship with Jesus Christ, you end up with one complete sentence. 
If you take them and pull them apart, you end up with a bunch of sentence fragments and half-finished thoughts. These are too intertwined, and you cannot pull them apart. And it says very clearly that the relationship I have with my wife in all these different ways. Let's read it again. I wasn't planning on doing this, but go back to verse 25 or verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Do you see it's so intertwined? Keep going. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. The giving of himself is seen in the marriage relationship that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Even the image of sanctification is seen in the marriage relationship so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love the wives as their own bodies, because he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It is so intertwined, so interweaved, that you cannot pull the two apart. And I get, I get that not all of us have the picture-perfect husband, wife, raising kids. I get that. And there are some people in this church who are killing it outside of the picture-perfect thing. We've got grandparents without another grandparent single-handedly raising kids, and it blows my mind because they're killing it. What I am saying is this. For those of us who have this, do not waste it. Because all through the marriage, there are opportunities to show Jesus Christ. So what does this look like for me? What this looks like for me is I sit down with Clara and I say to Clara, I love you. Oh man, do I love you. And you know I love you. You can see it in the decisions I make and the words that I say. And I love you. But you need to know that you are not the queen of this house. Elizabeth is the queen of this house. And there will come a day when you will be the queen of the house. But it is not this day. Because you need to see in the way that I give myself for my wife the way Christ gave himself for you. And you need to see by the way that I 
by my words make her splendorous what Jesus Christ does for you by his words. And Asher needs to know that Jesus Christ cherishes him and nourishes him and cares for him and sacrificed for him in the way that I nourish and cherish and care for and sacrifice for my wife. It's very clearly here that the pattern of Jesus Christ and our love for him is seen in the marriage relationship. So here's what's so incredibly beautiful about that. This is one of those investments where if my relationship with Jesus Christ and what's going on in my own heart pays dividends in my relationship with Elizabeth because it starts here. What God is doing in my heart doesn't just affect me and my heart. It pays dividends in the next relationship out. Okay? So does the relationship between my wife and me where the investment that I make there not only impacts my marriage, it pays dividends in the relationship with my kids. So what I'm saying is this. You want to be a great father? Start by being a great husband. And it will pour over onto your kids. That's why I think Paul spends four fifths of his time talking about marriage because it not only impacts the marriage it pours all the way through into my kids relationships so maybe it's not four-fifths and one-fifth but at the very least may the weight of the family not rest with the kids may it rest with the marriage and do you think it is by coincidence that Satan works so hard against marriages. Why? Because according to this, the profound mystery, this is what he says, the profound mystery of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done is visible in the mundane, everyday relationship of marriage. Which means it moves outward even still. You pour into your relationship with your spouse, and not only will that have impact on your family, but it will be just like the Shema, where it will become a witness to others. So, as those of us who are blessed... May we use it. Use it to pour into our kids. Use it to share Jesus Christ with those around us. And for those of us who the situation was broken, maybe in some sort of a loss of trust or whatever that might look like, can I just say that Jesus Christ nourishes and cherishes, cares for, 
and he restores. He heals, and he gives back what the enemy has stolen. And for those of us who are in here who have never accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, the thing is, this is the most important message. And why marriage is so important is because of the fact that it so clearly is so intertwined with the relationship. I mean, how do you tie together sanctification and marriage? It's there. It's clearly there. Presenting as splendorous and spotless by the word. It's there in the marriage. And it's so vital because of the fact that Jesus Christ is visible in it. The profound mystery is what Paul calls it becomes visible. And so you may be in here and you've not ever committed your life to Jesus Christ, declared him as Lord, believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Today you have an opportunity to do that very thing. And this is without a shadow of a doubt the most important thing. The most important thing. Because we are all defiled. We have all sinned. And Jesus Christ did sacrifice and die in order that we could receive eternal life. I'm going to invite you to stand with me today. And I do encourage you, if you haven't done it yet, sign up for this conference. But understand this. That what God has done from the very beginning is use the relationships of the family to proclaim himself. And at the core of that is the relationship of marriage. Very clearly, you see sacrifice for sin. You see sanctification. You see being made holy and restoration. You see all of these things in it. And I would encourage you to not lose sight of those things this morning. And always, always, always make sure that Jesus Christ is glorified in that family. Start here. Move outward. If you're in here and you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have an opportunity to do that very thing this morning. Let's do that. Father, we do just come to you as those who have recognized that you are good. Um, we recognize and see that your patterns and the way you work thousands of years ago, oh God, you still work and those patterns are still there. You still use the family in order to proclaim Jesus Christ and to glorify yourself to witness to who you are and what you're like and what you have done. And so, Father, I pray for the families and the marriages in this church right now. And I pray that they would be strong. And even as we invest in them over these weeks to come, God, I just pray that that strength that we've been talking about would be very clearly there, not on the outside looking in, not, not just having the appearance of it, not just written on the gates or on the doorposts, but God, written on hearts, start on the inside and work in such a way that those families in this church are strong from the inside out, oh God. May the relationship with you be central 
And then, God, I pray over the marriages in this church. God, you said that you're the one who keeps us. And we know the enemy would seek to sift the marriages of this church. But, God, I pray for them. I pray that you would make them strong. And, oh, God, that the families here and the marriages in this church, that we would make one another strong. That as you work in us, that not only would you be working in us, but working in all of the families around us. May we all see marriage as something that is of great worth and precious and respected and holy, O oh God. And may we strengthen the families around us, no matter where we find ourselves on that spectrum, O oh God. And I pray for the kids in this church right now. I cry out on behalf of the children in this church. I pray that they would see represented in the families that they have opportunity to see. The marriages they have opportunity to see. May they see Jesus Christ and his love for them and the fact that he speaks and they are made splendorous. Oh God, that you nourish and cherish and care for, oh God. May they see that. And, O oh Lord, I pray that we would be a village, O oh God, strengthening and encouraging and uplifting each other's families. May this conference be a platform off of which we launch. In the name of Jesus. Father, I pray for anybody who is in here right now. O oh God, who we talk about these things and it all just doesn't get traction because of the fact that they don't know Jesus Christ themselves. They don't know what Jesus has done for them. Oh God, I pray right now that you would drive it to the very depths of every heart in this room. Jesus Christ is the only answer. We are all defiled. We are all sinful. But you, by the washing of speaking a word over us, make us holy, oh God. And that happens as we put our faith in you, believing in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and we confess him as Lord over our life. So I confess you as Lord right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Your Lord and all that I have is in you. God, I praise you and I glorify you for all of these things. I thank you for it. And I ask all of these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.